Well, I'm excited about um, this next section that we're going to move into because um, it's just really, it's probably the, the most fun portion of what I want to co cover because we've been spending a lot of time this last uh, month, really, I guess it's been four weeks, but parts one through four, we've been looking at what the Bible presupposes about interpretation. How do we really know that we're reading the Bible rightly, properly? How do we really know we're getting to the right meaning, the right conclusion? And um, as we've been looking at what the Bible presupposes about those things, we've been learning that these things are critical for, for how we read. And we should not be surprised when we look at how the Bible practices interpretation to find out that it does exactly what it presupposes. And so that's what I want to look at this, this session. So um, this will really cover parts five through part eight. So the next month, really, we'll be looking at what the Bible practices, how it practices interpretation, how it practices hermeneutics, because it actually does hermeneutics right in front of us every time uh, a, New, a New Testament author interprets the Old Testament or a prophet interprets the Torah. And so we're going to look at some of those examples, and we're going to spend our time focusing on how the Bible interprets itself. So what's fun about this is we get to dive into the scriptures, and we get to look at um, what it actually says about its own meaning uh, as it practices hermeneutics right in front of us. So it's really an inspired hermeneutics um, class, and we get to look at what the uh, biblical authors do. So as we, uh, as we get started, I want to just invite you to uh, pray with me, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we're so thankful that we get to gather, and thank you for this equipping hour. We're so grateful that we can just be encouraged by the clarity of your word, and, and as we gather uh, every Lord's Day to come and encourage one another to lift our hearts and minds to you, to think about your truth, uh, I pray that this equipping hour would become a foundation for what we do every time we open your word, and that it would become a foundation that would build great confidence and um, great encouragement as we have already learned what a hermeneutic um, must be from your scriptures. I pray that we would benefit by the example of how you, of how you model it. Lord, you, you make no, no error in how you interpret your own word. You know exactly what you meant by what you said. And so as we look at how scripture actually models hermeneutics, I pray that we would benefit. I pray that we would become... Uh, convinced, and that we would become bold with what we learn from your word as we interpret it, how you have demanded that we interpret it. And then when attacks come, attacks about how we think about ministry and how we think about the gospel, attacks about who you are, who your son is, or what he accomplished, attacks about who we are, Lord, I pray that when we hear these attacks, these satanic assaults on, on your truth, we would be well-equipped and that we would be confident that we know exactly who you are and who we are because of what you said. And we know that we didn't get there because of some aberrant hermeneutic or some, we weren't reading it incorrectly, but we can know that we were taking your word in the proper way when we interpret it the way you do. And so we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start off with a really uh, bold statement here. Um, one of the most obvious ways we can look at how the 
New Testament practices hermeneutics is simply how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. And so there's a bold statement here on your first slide, if you look at the PowerPoint behind me. Every time the New Testament interprets uh, the Old Testament, the biblical authors practice what the Bible already presupposed about language, interpretation, and meaning. So what we've been doing for the last month is we've been looking at what does the Bible presuppose? There's certain things that just have to be true uh, as the Bible makes expectations and assumptions about uh, human language and, and uh, the ability of the reader to understand human language and what makes a proper interpretation. It just presupposes so much about those things. And now we're going to turn a corner and we're going to ask the question, well, if God inspired the Scripture and he inspired New Testament authors to interpret the Old Testament, well, then those interpretations are infallible. Those interpretations are absolutely correct because God can't make any mistakes. And so those interpretations of the Old Testament have to be accurate. And lo and behold, when we do that, you realize we shouldn't be surprised that every single time the New Testament authors interpret the Old Testament, they practice what the Bible presupposes about what we've been learning for the last month. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? But that becomes pretty overwhelming as far as a confidence booster about how to read the Bible when you realize, wow, the Bible presupposes all these things and it practices all these things with 100% consistency. That is so encouraging. And that's probably one of the most encouraging things I've ever learned as I've tried to study scripture and be able to come to a conclusion of how do I really know what God meant by what he said? But as soon as I say that, that's probably going to be, raise some questions in your mind. Wow, John, that is a big statement. Every time the Old Testament interprets the New, it, it interprets it that way, just in a straightforward, uh, literal, grammatical hermeneutic. It pays attention to the fact that God is speaking and he meant one thing and he determines meaning and human, human language is adequate to convey that meaning and the, the, the grammar and the historical context are, are sufficient to actually know what that meaning is, I think I can think of some examples that might dispute that statement. And so that's what we're going to start looking at. Before we do that, though, I have to make some inter just a couple of interesting observations. I was reading a, a book years ago, written by several scholars who would actually not agree with that statement. They would not agree that every time the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, the, the, the New Testament authors interpret that way. They wouldn't agree with that. They would, they would say that there are exceptions to that. And I went through, it's a commentary on the New Testament use of the Old, and I went through this volume and, and I cataloged every single commentary on every single New Testament quotation of the Old Testament, and I came up with the stats from these scholars how often New Testament authors interpreted the Old Testament in a straightforward, literal way, in a way that I've been describing for the last month. And even though these scholars don't agree with me, even though they think that the scriptures, the New Testament authors can do some really weird things in interpretation, even though they believe that, they had to acknowledge that 91% of Old Test New Testament quotations from the Old Testament were interpreted literally, in a straightforward way that actually demands that you read it grammatically 
in its historical context, 91% of the time. And these guys don't even agree with me. And it's just fascinating. If you go to the next slide, you can just see as you start your way through the New Testament, we're not gonna, I'm not going to list all the quotations from the uh, Old Testament in the New. That would, that would be way too long. But this is just the first two. Let's just start with the first two. Matthew 1.23 and Matthew 2.6. I mean, these are so inarguable as to just prove the point. And so let's just start real quick and just, just to say we could multiply this. Uh, 90% of the quotations don't even hardly require any explanation as to how the New Testament author was interpreting the old. Matthew 1.23. Matthew is making his way through the gospel, and what's important to say at this point is to remember that Matthew's gospel is the most Jewish of all the four gospels. It's a polemic for Jesus being the king of Israel to a Jewish audience primarily. And so here he quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, and he quotes it word for word in Matthew 1.23, and you can read there in Matthew's, and just read, stay in Matthew here for a second. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. This is pretty... Pretty straightforward. When you go to Isaiah, and you read Isaiah, and particularly read chapters 7 and 8 together, you find out that you're in a context where pagan kings are coming against Judah, namely Syria has an alliance with the northern tribes, and so this Syrian-Phoenician-Israel alliance is coming after Judah, and they want to knock off Ahab, the king of Israel. I mean, sorry, the king of Judah. They want to take him out and just cut off the Davidic line and remove him from the throne, and they even say, we're going to put Tabeel, a pagan, a Gentile, on the throne in the place of this son of David. In that context, Isaiah comes along and says, hey, don't worry, be encouraged. Before, you, know, you don't even have to worry about this, this alliance. You don't have to worry about this threat because guess what? I'm going to give you a sign, Ahab. There's going to be a sign. A virgin's going to have a child. And his name's going to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And by the way, before, this, before he's, he's even old enough to determine you know, right from wrong, left from right, you won't have to worry about this threat anymore. See, that threat is a, a threat to the Davidic promise. It's a threat to the Davidic line. It's a threat to the redemptive purposes of the Davidic covenant. It's a pagan threat. It's an antichrist threat. And then in chapter 8, God turns around and tells Isaiah, okay, now go and have a child with your wife. And guess what, Isaiah? By the time your child, whose name is clearly not <laughs> Emmanuel, it's Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, much unfortunate name for that little guy. Um, he grows up, and, and here he is in time and space as Isaiah is giving his prophecy, growing up in front of his audience, and Isaiah tells the nation, guess what, by the time Mahar Shalal Hashbaz is two years old, before he can determine right from wrong or tell left from right, we don't have to worry about this threat up north. And it's fulfilled exactly as Isaiah said it would. And so you know that the prophecy of Isaiah 7 is legitimate and true. Some people have said, 
No, no, that wasn't a prophecy of Christ. It only became a prophecy of Christ when Matthew wrote his gospel. In fact, I remember being in a class one time and somebody asked that, professor asked that question. There was 12 of us in the room and the professor said, how many of you um, would say that Matthew, I'm sorry, that Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 7, verse 14 of a, of, a, of a virgin, how many of you would say that that was messianic or that that was referring to Christ before Matthew wrote his gospel? And I'm thinking, like, isn't that, ever, who, who wouldn't believe that? And me and one other guy out of 12 believed that. And everybody thought we were ridiculous. And so we started this conversation, and it became clear that they didn't really the guys who didn't agree didn't understand the context of Isaiah. They didn't understand what, was, what Isaiah was saying and what, what it meant and the significance of that prophecy and where it fell. And oh, by the way, it's also fascinating that 250 years before Christ was even born, Jewish scholars translated the term Alma in Hebrew, which certainly means virgin, into the Greek word Parthenos, which means virgin, not young woman. And some people, this is about the only way I've heard this passage debated, and that's people who say, no, 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 the prophecy means, it means young woman. Well, that's even more remarkable, because now that means that Isaiah is saying, here's a sign, a young woman's going to have a baby. Oh, well, that's remarkable. That's only happened 16 billion times in the history of mankind. Here's how you'll know the Messiah, because she, he's going to be born of a young woman. <laughs> who does, that doesn't rule out anyone. It's a virgin, and it always meant virgin, and Jewish scholars translated it virgin 250 years before Christ. And Matthew comes along and says, see, what did Isaiah tell us? And it's so straightforward as to be inarguable. Of course it's argued because it evidences Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah. But there's no real legitimate argument here from a grammatical historical perspective about the meaning of Isaiah 7.14 and the way Matthew is interpreting it in Matthew chapter 1. The second one's even quicker. It requires any explanation. Matthew 2, 6. He quotes Micah 5, 2. And the context here for Matthew, in Matthew's context, he's talking about the religious leaders. Um, Herod goes to the religious leaders and says, hey, where, where is the Messiah going to be born? And these are these Jewish leaders who end up being shown as unbelievers by the end of Matthew's gospel, by the middle of Matthew's gospel, really, they say, oh, that's easy, Matthew 5, 2. In the prophet, it says, I'm sorry, Micah 5, 2. In the prophet, it says, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They knew the Messiah was of the tribe of Judah. They knew that he was going to shepherd his people. They knew that he was of the line of David. They knew all of these things. And so they go straight to Micah 5, 2, because it says that that one is going to be born in Bethlehem. And you go and read Micah 5.2, and guess what? It says the Messiah's going to be born in Bethlehem. I mean, it's so straightforward. It's inarguable. My, Matthew is reading the Old Testament, and he's just paying attention to what it says in its context. And that's the way all of the New Testament authors read the Old Testament. They interpret it according to the grammar of the passage, in the historical context in which it was given, and they presuppose, and then they demonstrate by their practice that texts only have one meaning. That meaning is determined by the author. And they all demonstrate that human language is adequate to convey that meaning. Now, it's the third use of the Old Testament 
that becomes problematic for what, I, for what I said on that first slide, that every instance of the interpretation of the Old Testament is very straightforward. And um, honestly, the third use is Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 15, and this is actually probably the most debated one in the entire New Testament, probably the most debated use of the Old Testament as far as did, did Matthew read Hosea correctly? Now, it's pretty, pretty sweet. I was talking to uh, Steve about this, and uh, it's pretty sweet that um, a couple months ago, he asked his small group, so if you're in a small group, you might remember this. Uh, I hope you remember this. He asked his small group to read through um, the book of Hosea. And over the course of a month, um, several, some, some of you, several, several here in this church, read through Hosea, and, um, and then they talked about this, this prophecy here in, in Matthew 5, in two, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 15, which is a quote of Hosea 11.1. 1. Trying not to get my numbers mixed up here. Matthew 2.15, Hosea 11.1. 1. And after reading through Hosea for a month, Steve said, yeah, there, hardly anybody had any of the classic questions. It just all those questions about meaning, was, it was answered because the meaning was so clear from Hosea's prophecy as a whole what was happening in Hosea 11.1. 1. But let me, let me build up the problem, and let me build up some tension in your mind, and then we'll knock it down this morning. Okay, is that fair? We're going to look at Hosea, this is all we're going to have time for this morning, is this Hosea 11.1 1 quote, because it's one of the most misunderstood. Matthew 2.15, context here is Jesus. He has, um, Joseph and Mary have already um, left for Egypt, and interestingly enough, I'm going to reveal some of my cards here already, after they leave and go to Egypt, not after they come out of Egypt, when they go to Egypt, that's when Matthew says this was a fulfillment of what had already been said, verse 15, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And so, this becomes challenging for some interpreters because some people have immediately assumed, oh, what Matthew's saying is that the reference here for son is, is Jesus Christ, and that doesn't seem to be the case in Hosea. And that's actually not what Matthew's saying. He's not saying that Jesus is the son. He's saying that the preservation of Jesus and preserving his life, even in infancy, from the hostility of a pagan king who's a Jew, a pagan Jewish king named Herod, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Hosea 11.1. I'm kind of fond of um, Abner Chow's analogy of what happens sometimes when um, we look at New Testament uses of the Old Testament because the Old Testament has, let's just be honest, it's been around for a long time. It had been around for a long time when the New Testament was written. And I'm kind of fond of Abner Chow's anecdote. He said it's kind of like you look at some of the commentary of people saying, oh, the New Testament uses the Old in some weird ways. And he says, but you know what? You go back and look at the Old Testament, and you realize, you know, there's been a conversation happening here for a long time. He said, I think it's kind of like when you have a circle of friends, and you kind of walk into the conversation about 20 minutes after the conversation's been going, and you come in, and you're like missing out on, you, none of it makes sense to you, and you don't have any reference, and you don't even know what's going on, and then you ask some ignorant question, and everybody laughs at you. 
I've never done that. But I've just heard people, you know, I've heard that happens to people and sometimes in social settings. It's like, that's kind of what's happening here in the Old Testament. It's, there's a conversation happening in the Old Testament. And it's been going on for a long time. And there's a lot of revelation. And there's a lot of profound nuances. And all of it is clear. And then along comes the New Testament. And it builds on that clear conversation. And then along comes an ignorant commentator who reads the New Testament and is unaware of the conversation that's been happening in the Old Testament for centuries and says, no, they're not interpreting it in a straightforward fashion. And then you go back and look at the conversation and you're like, what's so difficult about this? And so that's what I want to do with Hosea this morning. Basically, here's our outline. For the next few minutes, we're going to spend some time in Hosea's context and then we're going to look at Matthew's context and I think it's going to be pretty clear for all of us. So let's just start with Hosea's context. So go back and turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. And uh, we're going to go ahead and just stand while I read the whole prophecy here. I'm just kidding. I honestly am going to organize my, I tried to organize my thoughts and organize the PowerPoint kind of from Hosea chapter 1 on. So I kind of want to work through it in a canonological fashion and just start with Hosea 1 and give you a brief overview of what is important. Not, not, I mean, we're skipping so much in Hosea. I'm not trying to be trying to do some sort of 20-minute exposition of Hosea. But what I want to do is give you a 20-minute exposition of what's critical for understanding what is happening in Hosea 11.1. So that's what's determining what I leave out and what I include, is I'm trying to give you clarity on Hosea 11.1. So this is by no means a satisfactory survey of the book of Hosea, by, by any means. It's going to fall far short of that. But I'm going to try to highlight what's very, very critical for, in Hosea's context for understanding this particular prophecy. Let's start at the very beginning, almost at the very beginning, at least in chapter 1, verse 4. You see on the slide there, the the first point that's super important here is the prophecy of Jezreel. As I was studying the book of Hosea and thinking about this very dilemma, I was blown away by the importance of the prophecy of Jezreel. In fact, I had to admit, I was that Johnny-come-lately to the conversation, and I realized that in trying to understand Hosea 11.1, I haven't been a part of the conversation. And I come walking in, what's going on in Hosea 11.1? And everybody laughs at me. And here there's this prophecy sitting here in chapter 1 that is so profound and has so much implication for Matthew's use of this prophecy. You know the story. Hosea uh, is told to marry an unfaithful woman. And some people have debated whether that's historically accurate. Uh, the really only reason people would say that is because it was uh, illegitimate for a Levite to have some function as a priest uh, marrying a, a, a prostitute or a profligate woman. But Hosea is not a priest. He's not a Levite. And this is certainly historically accurate. He marries her, and he has an, an actual physical child. And in verse 3, she conceives a son. In verse 4, the Lord said to, to him, being Hosea, name him Jezreel. Now, in Hebrew, when you, when you hear a name like that, and the, at this point in Revelation, the name probably is going to evoke in, most, in the audience's mind the, the city, and, and it should, because he's going to allude to the, to the location called Jezreel. But etymologically, just as far as the name means, um, z- 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 uh, it means the Lord, or, or even sh- it's short for Yahweh, so Yahweh, or the Lord plants, is what Jezreel means. Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. 
On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, he goes on to have two more children. The next one's named Lo-Ruhamah, which means no compassion. And then the next one is Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And so those three children have three names that are very significant for the prophecy. What's significant about Jezreel? And specifically, God draws out and makes a very explicit mention of Jehu. What's so specific about Jehu? And why is Jehu mentioned here for the bloodshed of Jezreel? And for that, we need to go back and look at the context. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9. And you think, man, if this is all what Matthew was alluding to, why didn't he explain it all? Well, part of that is just because he's a Jew. And he's writing to Jews. And the Jews knew their Old Testament. So it's kind of like me speaking to you as Americans saying 40 score and seven years, or uh, four score and seven years ago, and, and I said, 40 score, and you're like, what's that mean? That makes no significance. Four score and seven years ago, and, and you'll pick up on the historical reference to the Gettysburg Address. There's just a common, there's a commonality that we share uh, culturally. It's just part of, our, of who we are, and it's familiar, it's common knowledge. So when Matthew is working off of common knowledge between him and his audience, he's not taking the time to explain it. Because Jezreel and Hosea, and Hosea 11.1, that's common knowledge to his audience. What's not common knowledge is how accurately and precisely Jesus of Nazareth fulfills those prophecies. So now we're going to go back because it might not be common knowledge to us. 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu, if you have a little... Uh, title over your chapter, mine says, Jehu reigns over Israel. And what's interesting here is when you read the first section of chapter 9, we don't have time to do this, so we've got to be really quick here. So if, this, if something is, is hazy, just write it down and go back and read 2 Kings 9 to 11 very carefully. But in the first section here of chapter 9, Jehu is, is told to go and, and kill um, the king of Israel. Now, Elisha the prophet goes to Jehu and, and tells him what he needs to do. He tells him in verse 7, You shall strike the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, uh, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of, Israel, of the Lord, sorry, and, and at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off Ahab from Ahab every male person. So he is actually going to accomplish judgment on the house of Ahab, and he's going to use Jehu to accomplish it. So Elijah goes to Jehu and says, you're the guy. You're going to be the king, and you need to wipe out Ahab and his family and his house. Wow. This is serious judgment against Ahab and his unbelief, and against Jezebel and her unbelief. And so if you finish the chapter, you realize that he does that. And so at that point, you might be thinking, what bloodshed of Jezreel? Why is, why is there a judgment coming on Israel because of that kind of bloodshed? Isn't that what God told him to do? Didn't God tell him to kill Ahab? Yes, he did. That's not the bloodshed of Jezreel. We've got to keep reading. Skip down to um, verse 27. We are completely skipping over Jehu's, uh, how he kills Ahab and his sons. Okay, that's, that's recorded, and that's, that's, what Ahab, that's what Jehu was supposed to do. 
And there's actually no commentary about his motives or anything. He just does what he was told to do. He kills Ahab in his house. Verse 27. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, emphasis on the king of Judah. God did not give Jehu a command about the king of Judah. He didn't tell him to touch the king of Judah. Ahaziah is the son of David. Ahaziah is in the line. He's reigning over the tribe of Judah. But Ahaziah happens to be there. He's the king of Judah. He sees what Jehu has done to the house of Ahab, the king of Israel in the north. He fled by the way of the garden house, and Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him too in the chariot! So they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is at Iblim, but he fled to Megiddo and died there. And so, by the way, as you read through this, Jezreel is where he kills um, Ahab. I'm sorry, um, yeah, this is where he kills, kills Ahab. And now, in verse 28, his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem. They buried him in the father in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah became king over Judah. And when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. She painted her eyes and adorned her, her head and looked out of the window. So then, then it goes on how he ends up um, taking care of Jezebel. But smack dab between killing Ahab and his sons and then killing Jezebel, you have the murder of the son of David, God's own anointed, in the line of David. Such an act is every bit as much of an antichrist act as what Herod attempted against Jesus. Don't get distracted by what Jehu did to Ahab and what he did in the north. That's what he was supposed to do. He's an unbeliever. He doesn't believe the redemptive promise. He doesn't believe the redemptive purpose. Skip back to, oh, by the way, this is also interesting. I'll, I'll go ahead and I, I mentioned 9 through 11 because I wanted you to read the whole context there. But the reason why I went chapter 11 is because in chapter 11, what happens is after she realizes that all of her, um, her uh, uh, grandchildren are killed, she rises up. This is the mother of Ahaziah. She realizes that he's dead. She, she starts killing out the entire royal line. Chapter 11, verse 1, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose up and destroyed all, all the royal offspring. And then it was only the fact that they hid Josiah, who was a baby. They hid him for several years before he was eight years old, and then they brought him back to the throne. They hid him from her antichrist assault on the Davidic covenant as she wipes out every infant in the royal line. And when you think of the blood of Jezreel, you should think of Jehu killing um, Ahaziah, and you should think of Athaliah killing all of the infants. Go back to Hosea chapter 1. Now read verse 4 one more time. The Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. That's the bloodshed that Hosea is, is, is talking about. It's the kind of unbelief that is actually characterizing the generation that Hosea is ministering to. It's unbelief that's permeated the nation of Israel through and through. And this is a judgment that comes against 
an assault on the king of Judah in the Davidic line. Twice, both Jehu and Athaliah. Now, let's keep moving through the book of Hosea here. Next thing I want to point out, if you look at your next slide there, number two. Redemption from Egypt alludes to the past in order to point toward the future. And this is extremely important. As Hosea talks uh, to the nation of Israel, what's important to understand is that the references to Egypt have a historical significance, but they are actually forward-pointing. The references in Hosea have a reference to the past, what happened when God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, but they are now forward-pointing, future-looking, and they anticipate something that's yet to happen. This is extremely important, and this is pretty, pretty consistent all the way through the, the, the prophecy. Let me just give you um, a few examples here. To understand Egypt in Hosea, we of course need to be familiar with the book of Exodus, but let's see what Hosea says himself about the nation of Egypt. Um, in chapter 2, verse 15, I'll give you a second, it'd be fun to just kind of follow along. I'm going to give you several references as we go through the, through the book here for a second, just looking at the term Egypt. And so, uh, you can listen if you want, but if you, if you want to turn your pages, that's great. Uh, 2.15, Hosea says, I will give her vineyards from there and from the valley of Echor as a door of hope, and she will sing uh, there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. At the first instance of the book of the term Egypt, it's already forward pointing. It's already talking about the future. I'm, she's going to rejoice in the future, just like what happened when she came out of Egypt. Um, chapter seven, verse eleven. Look at this example. Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. It talks about Israel in her folly, not looking to the Lord for deliverance, not trusting the Lord and his promises, but looking to world superpowers. Instead of trying to find security and peace and rest from Yahweh, who has promised them those things, they're looking to alliances and horizontal treaties and coming by of power and finding a way to navigate and create for herself peace and prosperity, and rest, and military security. And so he says in the same verse, they'll call to Egypt, they'll call to Assyria, these are the world's superpowers. Look at chapter 7, verse 16. They turn, but not upward. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of their insolence of their, of their tongue. They will be, this will be their derision in the land of Egypt. Chapter 8, verse 13, he goes on to say... Um, they, at the very end of the verse, they will return to Egypt. Notice the future tense. They will return to Egypt. Chapter 9, verse 3. They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt. And in Assyria, they will eat unclean food. Now, twice we've already seen Egypt and Assyria mentioned in the same verse. Hosea is drawing a direct corollary between Egypt and Assyria, saying that Israel is trusting in world superpowers and saying that here they will return to Egypt. And what I mean by that is they'll return, they'll go to Assyria. Interesting. 
Chapter 9, verse 6, um, they, they, because of this, they'll go to destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will take over their treasures of silver. Thorns will be in their tents. In chapter uh, 11, verse 1, of course, this is the very text that we're thinking about. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. And that's uh, clearly there's a historical referent here. But again, the question becomes, what's it doing at this point in the prophecy? That's, what we were, that's the question we have to answer. Chapter 11, verse 5. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to return to me. Whoa. At this point, you're seeing these connections between Egypt and Assyria, and you realize all these references to historical Egypt are because they were in bondage to Egypt, or because of the joy they experienced coming out of Egypt will be their future joy at some point in the future here for the nation. But now he's saying, as far as where you're going in the future, it's not literal Egypt, it's actual literal Assyria, but it's just like Egypt. You're going back to slavery because you're not trusting in me because of your infidelity. And so now you can see what he's doing with this reference to Egypt. He's alluding to what's happened in the past to talk about it happening again in the future. Chapter 11, verse uh, 11, they will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in houses, declares the Lord. There's future fulfillment about coming out, uh, being restored back from slavery and from bondage. Chapter 12, verse 1, Ephraim feeds on the wind. He pursues east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. And it just goes on like this, 12.9, um, I've been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. 12.13, um, 12, 13, um, by, by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel back from Egypt. And by a prophet, he was kept. In 13 verse 4, I've been the Lord your God since Egypt. There's no other God that you were supposed to know besides me. There's no other Savior besides me. And so Egypt becomes, has a very rich, rich significance. Now, let me, let's go back real quick and look at a couple instances. Chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Look what happens here. In chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, Hosea tells the nation, The thing itself will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jerob. Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. Samaria will be cut off with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. Israel's going to be cut off entirely, and they're going to return, not to literal Egypt, but to literal Assyria, and her king is going to be cut off. And then you saw it already in 11.5, it's not, it's not Egypt, it's, it's Assyria. So twice, he's making the point to, to show, I, he's using Egypt with historical significance, because that's the context that they were already familiar with, they know Egypt, they were in slavery there, it's going to happen again, and you're going, to go back into, you're going to go back into Egypt. And what I mean by that is literally Assyria. He's demonstrated that over and over and over again throughout this prophecy. Now, on this point, the redemption from Egypt alludes to the past in order to point toward the future. There's another way that we need to understand this from Hosea's prophecy. And that's the structure as a whole. If you go to the slide that has the structure, Hosea's structure is very important to understand the forward-pointing nature of this prophecy. So if you're familiar with Hosea and Gomer, you remember that really, here's the easy way to think about the book of Hosea. Chapters 1 through 3 is Hosea and Gomer, 4 to 14 is Yahweh and Israel. 
What's interesting about those two relationships is that they are parallel. So in one and two, you have marriage and infidelity, and then in chapter three, redemption and faithfulness. In four to 10, marriage and infidelity. In chapters 11 to 14, redemption and faithfulness. And so it's a real tight parallel. So to understand what's happening in Hosea 11.1, which is the turning point in the prophecy about Yahweh's relationship to Israel, we need to understand what the parallel is in Hosea's relationship to Gomer. And so, if you remember, chapters one, we saw the, the chapter one, we saw the, the birth of three children. They're named, and their names are significant. Chapter two talks about the promise and fulfillment to the nation of Israel in light of those names. And in um, chapter three, how profound. This woman of harlotry lives up to her name. In verse 1, God says, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. And some people have struggled with Hosea as a prophecy or even as a real-life example because such a thing just seems offensive for a scripture writer. And that's only a fraction of the offense God feels toward the infidelity of his people. So what does Hosea do? Verse 2, so I bought her out of slavery after I spit in her face, showed my scorn. No. I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain many days without a prince, a king, without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. Interestingly enough, there's three pairs. The first of each of these pairs is something that God had, had demanded in the Torah, namely a king, a sacrifice, and ephod. The second of these pairs are the idolatrous side of it, prince, sacred pillar, and household idols. Verse 5, afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They're going to seek Yahweh as their God and David their king. This is a son of David, a seed of Eve, who is a human God, and he will rule over his people. This is messianic. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. When the son of David shows up and rules, you're going to see a nation corporately, nationally, from border to border, trembling at God's word, fearing the Lord. That's the sign of, of the fulfillment here. And appreciate the story of Hosea and Gomer here for a second before we turn and look at the relationship of Yahweh to Israel. He walks up to purchase her out of slavery. And think about the offense involved. And if this were playing out in some sort of drama, and you didn't know the end of the story, 
you might be thinking at that particular point, this character, what's he going to do? Just ignore her and walk off? Show anger? Spit, at her, spit in her direction and just turn the other way? What's going to happen? No. He redeems her. And the redemption is, of course, messianic. God's going to cultivate the hearts of his people till they tremble at God and fear his word and tremble before the king, the son of David. Chapter 4, verses, chapter four verse 1 through 10, 15, the heart and soul of this prophecy document the same harlotry on the part of the people of God. And by the time you get to chapters 11 to 14, you're kind of wondering, what is God going to do with these people? What's he going to do with his people? Is he going to spit in their face? Is he going to turn and walk away? Is he going to ignore them? Show his anger? He's already said, I'm sending you back to Egypt, I mean Assyria. He's already said in chapter 3 that what happens when the parallel of, of Gomer being redeemed, the parallel of Gomer being redeemed by Hosea is Israel having a son of David reigning over them personally so that they tremble before the Lord. He's already shown in chapters 4 to 10 that their king is worthless. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. Surely now they will say, we have no king because we don't revere the, the Lord. I mean, they're sitting there, they're bragging that they have a king. We've got this king, he's sitting on the throne, and they're bragging about it. He says, surely they'll realize that he can't do anything for them. These are mere words, verse 4. With worthless oaths, they make covenants. Their king is worthless. So, verse 10-15, at dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. Israel has the ability to put a king on the throne. They can do that on their own. But they have no ability to bring about the Messiah. They can't produce that seed of the flesh. They can't produce a monarchy that will protect them from their enemies. They can't establish Sabbath rest in the land. They can't establish peace. They can't reverse the curse. When God redeems Israel, he's going to provide a son of David who will do all those things. So, we get to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. What's God's response to Israel's infidelity? kind of expect, like you expected in chapter 3, verse 1, you expected Hosea to spit at Gomer, you expect Yahweh to spit at Israel, but what does he say? When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What's the effect of that phrase? Obviously, my son is not the Messiah. My son is Israel. It's in, it's in 1a. It's in the very phrase before what Matthew quoted. So, Son is not Christ. Son is Israel. Son is Israel. In fact, that becomes inarguable that Matthew would 
make the argument that this is talking that this is fulfilled in Jesus because if son is Jesus properly then verse 2 makes no sense the more they called them the more they went from them they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols obviously Jesus Christ of Nazareth is no idolater uh, he's not saying that that's Jesus what is the point of chapter 11 verse 1 after Chapters 4 through 10 of documenting in detail, grotesque fashion, the nature of Israel's infidelity and its disloyalty to the Lord. It's as though Yahweh walks onto the slave trade and looks at his people who've been unfaithful to him. And he doesn't spit in her face. He says, Out of Egypt, I called my son. Is there a historical reference? Of course. There's a you have to understand Exodus to, to appreciate that past reference to Egypt. He redeemed them when they were slaves, kind of like Hosea married Gomer when she was a, a harlot. But he's already documented their harlotry after they have been married to Yahweh. And at this particular point in the prophecy, he says, I've already redeemed you once. Why is that the case? Because we need to keep reading in chapter 11. Notice, this is, notice how quickly it turns to future tense verbs. Verse 5. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to turn to me. So still future, but also condemnation there. The sword will whir against whirl against their cities and demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they call them to the, to the one on high. None at all exalts him. There's no one exalting Yahweh. They are unfaithful still, but he's still reminding them, I, I, I redeemed you out of Egypt. So verse 8 says, fantastically, shockingly, there's no... There's no rejection here. God actually says to Israel while on the slave trade, on the slave block, he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Two cities that are also destroyed in the sulfur of firing rock that consumed um, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's recorded in Deuteronomy 29. They're not recorded in Genesis, but those two cities are recorded in Deuteronomy 29. How can I treat you like those cities? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. I mean, you can see the effect of Yahweh walking to the slave block and making a past reference about previously what happened in Egypt. You can see why that points to the future. I already redeemed you once. I will do it again. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man. I am the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. Man certainly would express wrath at that particular point, not God. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar. His sons will come trembling from the west. And by the way, I'm going to make one more quick comment about Hosea's context, and then we've got to quickly get to Matthew. To understand verse 10, it's critical to understand Hosea's context because Hosea was speaking again to the nation of Israel and the Torah is just second nature to them. They understand the Torah. They know the Torah intimately. 
So to appreciate verse 10 and what's so forward pointing about it, go back to the book of Numbers for a second. Numbers chapter 23 and chapter 24, such a critical, critical text to understand what Hosea is doing here. Numbers 23, let's start in verse 21. Numbers 23, verse 21. Interestingly enough, this is Balaam, a false prophet speaking, but giving a true prophecy. So nevertheless, a false prophet giving a true prophecy. Um, He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel, what God has done. Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself. It will not lie down until it devours the prey and it drinks the blood of the slain. This is talking about the nation of Israel being protected blessed, unable to be opposed, unable to be cursed, and talking about ultimate victory against all enemies, describing the nation as a lion and as a lioness. Skip over to chapter 24, Numbers 24. um, Really, verse 8, start in verse 8, God brings Israel out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of a wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries. He will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. He, speaking of God now, Israel as a nation is compared to a lion in chapter 23. Now God is the lion in chapter 24, verse 9. He crouches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you and cursed is everyone who curses you. Skip down to verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab. A clear allusion to Genesis 3.15 about the seed of Eve crushing the head of the serpent. And here the satanic influence coming through Moab against the nation of Israel is going to be crushed by Israel from one who is future to come from the tribe of Jacob, from the tribe of Judah. Edom shall be a possession, verse 18. Seir, its enemies, will also be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion. God gave dominion to man. He fouled it up and lost it. But one coming from the tribe of Judah will restore dominion, and he will destroy the remnant from the city. And so here is a messianic prophecy describing God through the nation of Israel functioning as a lion against all enemies. Now, go back to Hosea for a second. And I didn't emphasize this. But go back for a second to Oh, sorry, we can keep reading. Chapter 11 verse 11. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Um, notice that phrase, they will come trembling. They will come trembling. Is that familiar? Remember that phrase, they will come trembling? Go back to chapter 3 verse 5. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling. It's messianic. In chapter 3, verse 5, the trembling of the nation. Hosea, chapter 11, verse 5, 6, 10, and 11 are all future tense. 10 refers to this future lion 
uh, and from messianic context rising up and devouring all enemies. And chapter 11 talks about a messianic context of the nation trembling corporately. This is a future deliverance yet to happen from Hosea's context. And the deliverance means that God is going to provide a king, as described in this prophecy, that Israel could never come up with or come by or sit on the throne. God's going to provide that king. And when that king reigns, the nation will tremble from border to border. And when, when Yahweh sees Israel on the slave block after profligacy, after being a harlot spiritually, he says, I already redeemed you once out of Egypt. I'm going to do it again. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 1. And I'll just make a couple comments about Matthew's context. The last slide here has three points, which you're going to have to look at in one minute. First point to recognize in Matthew's context is the location of the fulfillment. If the point was the direction, Jesus coming out of Egypt, then he put it in the wrong spot. Jesus doesn't come out of Egypt until verse 21. He was five verses too early. He made no mistake. Matthew made no mistake. God made no mistake. He puts it where it fulfilled the prophecy, and that was the preservation of this son of David from an antichrist assault against his life in a state of infancy. Like what happened at the blood of Jezreel. Like what happened with Athaliah against all of the infants and the attacks on the Davidic line. Interestingly, when he's preserved by getting out of Israel under the purview of a pagan king trying to kill him, Matthew says at that point, this fulfills Hosea's prophecy. The preservation of the king who would redeem the son Israel out of bondage. The king they could never produce. Secondly, notice the purpose of Matthew's fulfillments. There's four, four Old Testament quotes in Matthew 1.22 to Matthew 2.23. Four Old Testament quotes. And the purpose is to prove that Jesus is the king of Israel, the Christ of the Old Testament. He's the Messiah and the king of Israel. And the question for a Jew would be, if you're saying Jesus of Nazareth is the king of Israel, how is he our king? He didn't reign, he died. He, killed, we killed him on a cross. And so that's his job, is to prove that. And that's the third point here. Notice, just consider for a second, misinterpreting Hosea. If Hosea is speaking about the son of Israel and the fulfillment of redeeming Israel from the slave trade, which requires the establishment of a king to turn their hearts, then if he misinterprets the reference to son and says, oh, the son here is Jesus, this is a horrible apologetic. That's not compelling to any Jew who knows their Old Testament. He's not misusing Hosea. He understands what that prophecy means. When God says, I know that you were a harlot toward me, but I already redeemed you once out of Egypt. He is committing himself to putting one with the scepter from the tribe of Judah, the son of David, on the throne and preserving him until he reigns and reverses the curse and establishes dominion. He's signing up for that when he says, I bought you out of Egypt. I'm not reading that into Hosea. I'm reading that from Hosea. And Matthew's aware of Hosea. 
And when he says that right here, he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. And the Jewish audience, who was not convinced that Jesus was the Messiah because they loved their sin and he confronted their sin, they knew Jehu, they knew Athaliah, they knew the king that had failed throughout centuries of the monarchy. He knew centuries of apostasy, centuries of spiritual harlotry. They knew all of that. And they knew what God was committing to when he said it. And so Matthew does not read anything into Hosea. He actually listened to Hosea before he spoke. And that's what we have to do, to understand the Old Testament, to listen to it before we speak. And so... It's interesting, this is probably the most notable use of the old, um, New Testament use of the Old that would threaten my, my statement that every time it interprets it, it interprets it literally. But hopefully uh, when we see and understand what the Old Testament is doing, we'll understand that's, that the Bible is very, very consistent in interpretation. And that should give us incredible encouragement. From here, we're going to look at a few more, and we're going to look at how, uh, how to really think about our Old Testament, how to think about interpretation in a way that can give you confidence and just keep doing what, what, what's, what would we give in the New Testament. How does the New Testament author interpret the Old Testament? And we'll see that it is absolutely consistent. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful for prophecy. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your clarity that you've given to us in your, in your scripture. And Lord, I pray that um, you would increase our confidence. Thank you for this prophecy, Lord. Thank you for Christ who redeems us. And thank you for your fidelity to all of your promises. Uh, we, we stagger at the severity of your faithfulness because of what you commit to. And um, how much, if we understand ourselves rightly, we almost want to say that you, you go too far in your faithfulness but we would cringe to think that you wouldn't be faithful because we would be cut off because we've never been able to earn any of your blessings. But we thank, we're thankful you are faithful to your promise. We're thankful that you're faithful to Hosea 11.1 1, and that you did send Christ and you did preserve him in spite of the fact that the very people you sent him to um, tried to kill him and, and effectively did by the time he reached his adulthood. But Lord, you raised him from the grave, and he is our king. Thank you for redemption in Christ. And thank you that all of your promises are yes in him. In your name we pray. Amen.